Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, human beings, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. When it comes to sexual orientation and mental health, creating a safe space and opportunity for thoughtful, engaging conversations is imperative to supporting and empowering LGBTQ individuals. My guest today, Amit Paley, is committed to building a safer, more inclusive world for this community. As CEO and Executive Director of the Trevor Project, the world's largest suicide prevention and crisis intervention program for LGBTQ young people, Amit is leading the way in providing free and confidential suicide prevention services on platforms where young people spend their time. Nominated to Fortune's 40 Under 40 in 2021, and having been bestowed numerous, numerous awards, too many for me to count here, and to recount here, Amit is a renowned expert with a vision to establish a world where all LGBTQ youth see a bright future for themselves. Amit, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate your time. And I also recognize that every moment that we speak is a moment that I'm taking away from your cause. But at the same time, I also feel like it's so important to create and generate more awareness around very important issues for this community. You know, I often see Trevor Project, and I've quoted Trevor Project research in particular, and probably more so in the last four or five years than ever before. And I just think that what your organization is doing is absolutely phenomenal. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Trevor Project is what, 24 years old next week? My math's not great. <laughs> okay. Correct. It is, yeah. It's almost our birthday, our anniversary. So an exciting and getting close to our quarter century anniversary. Exactly, exactly. So let's just start there because I think it's important for those of our listeners who are not familiar with Trevor Project, especially those folks who are outside the United States, although I want to talk about Mexico as well. If you can just kind of give a quick description of the founding, I think it's quite interesting, especially because the impetus came from really the entertainment industry, right, many years ago. And if you can just, I'm not asking you to truncate 24 years in a few minutes, but if you can, maybe give us the grounding for the founding, as well as some of the uh, the key moments and, and highlights over the past almost quarter century. Sure. Well, we are the world's largest suicide prevention and mental health organization for LGBTQ young people, as you mentioned, and we were founded in 1998. And we came out, as you said, out of the entertainment industry. There was a, a short film called Trevor in the 90s, it, fictional, about a young boy who realized that he was gay and then dealt with feelings of depression and suicide, that the film ended up winning the Academy Award for Best Short Film. And after it won the Oscar, HBO decided to air it in 1998, which was a time when still very taboo to have LGBTQ themes on television and also taboo to have themes about suicide on television. In many ways, we still have many of those same stigmas and taboos, which is why the Trevor Project existed. But at that time, that was really groundbreaking for it to be on HBO. Ellen DeGeneres had just come out shortly before, so she introduced the film when it aired on HBO. And the uh, the producers of the film realized, well, all these kids across the country, like Trevor, are going to be watching be watching this film. We, we better make sure at the end that we include a resource for them to reach out to for help. And what they quickly discovered was that there was no national organization providing resources for LGBTQ young people. And so the producer said, we have to do something. We have to create our own. So the movie was called Trevor. They founded an organization called the Trevor Project. They launched a 24-7 phone lifeline for LGBTQ young people. 
it launched minutes before the movie went on the air on HBO in 1998. And then the phone started ringing off the hook that night. And it has not stopped ringing for the past two, almost two and a half decades. So that's how the organization was founded. A lot has changed since 1998. At that time, the organization and really the world had a narrower conception of what LGBTQ people were, really a focus at that time on gay and lesbian young people. We still focus on gay and lesbian young people, but we also serve bisexual young people and queer young people and a host of sexual orientations, as well as transgender and non-binary young people and a whole host of gender identities. Another thing that has changed was that at that time in 1998, the organization used to say it was focused on 13 to 24 year olds because there was a thought at the time that LGBTQ people couldn't possibly know that they were LGBTQ before they were 13. Well, the world has changed a lot. There are many, many people who come out long before they are 13. And I can tell you, I have taken calls from kids as young as five. So we now serve LGBTQ young people under the age of 25. And we run a whole host of programs for young people. We run programs that still run a lifeline, but 2022, we need to be serving young people where they are. So we, we serve young people on chat and text. We run a program called Trevor Space, which is the world's largest safe space social networking site for LGBTQ people. We have a research department, an advocacy department, and we do education and public awareness work as well. All right. That was super tight. Thank you. <laughs> you basically covered 24 years in five minutes, not even four minutes. Just to go back to 1998, I recall, and I'm sure you do as well, even the Clintons refused to even talk about marriage equality, then called same-sex marriage, the Clintons in 1998. Just to remind people, like you said, how narrow the context was and the lack of understanding, and also how this was not really on anyone's agenda or political agenda per se. So it was even an uphill battle. And to think that that's groundbreaking is kind of nutty, right? Because it shouldn't have been groundbreaking. But I love that story of how it was founded because I don't think a lot of people realize that. One of the other things that struck me recently, of course, when you think about the news, 2021 quite possibly could maybe be the worst year when it comes to anti-LGBTQ plus legislation since at least 2015. Talk a little bit about, I know that Trevor Project's doing a lot of things and you guys are probably very stretched. What are you doing to challenge these latest attacks? As we record this today on St. Patrick's Day, I know most told, you know, never date your podcast, but it's important. You know, Florida's don't say gay bill, and it's not just Florida. Can you reflect a little bit on, one, how you're feeling, but also what the Trevor Project is doing to combat some of this anti-gay legislation? Yeah, this is a very, very challenging time for LGBTQ young people, and it is painful and saddening and infuriating. And I think young people and adults are feeling a whole range of emotions. And for people who are not familiar with what is happening, there are an extreme number of anti-LGBTQ bills and also other actions taking place across the country. There are some like the one in Florida, which has been called the Don't Say Gay Bill. But to be very clear, it is not just targeting gay people, it is targeting trans people and bisexual people. It is a very purposely worded bill that is very vague in order to instill fear in teachers to make it to, to scare them from talking about anything related to sexual orientation or gender identity. So that can range from a young person brings in a photo of their two dads or two moms and a teachers based on the complicated and ambiguous wording of this legislation, they might be scared that they cannot allow a child to talk about their two parents 
that the teacher themselves has a same-sex partner. They might feel scared to talk about that. So this is really banning and censoring people talking about fundamental things about the community. There's an other types of legislation that are primarily targeting trans young people. I just came back from Texas where I was in Austin. The governor in Texas a few weeks ago said that providing gender affirming care for trans young people, which to be clear is the standard of care recommended by the American Medical Association and every major medical mental health group. The governor said that providing that care recommended by doctors will now be considered child abuse and that they will prosecute parents or caregivers and take children away from their parents and put them into foster care or other types of facilities. And it is hard to overstate how terrifying this bill is for trans young people and their families in Texas and across the country, because we've seen a lot of attacks. We were not expecting someone to be proposing something of ripping children away from their families simply for providing them what a doctor says is what they should do for their children. It is so profoundly wrong, so profoundly immoral and un-American. We do not believe it is legal and we, all these are gonna be challenged in court. But the impact of these is that they terrify children. They put fear into children who should be experiencing love and affirmation and support. So the Trevor Project is doing a whole host of things to, to respond and to combat to this. One, we are trying to raise awareness I think many Americans do not understand what these bills are doing and how cruel and wrong they are. So we're trying to sound the alarm and make people aware, good faith people who would not want to support children being ripped away from their families. We are working on the ground to, to combat these bills, advocating for them, showing our research, which shows that these bills are harmful to young people. And then we continue to run our services. We can't change everything that is happening in the world. And we can't lie to children and tell them that there aren't people who are attempting to do cruel and bad things. But we can let children know that there are always going to be a supportive place where they can go to talk to a trained counselor and an affirming adult who can let them know that they are beautiful the way that they are and that they are deserving of love and respect and that they are not alone. The Trevor Project will always be there to support. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, and I don't want to mess up this stat, but actually these bills could potentially harm more children, like you said, and even potentially in lethal ways. Because isn't it true that the sooner a child knows that they have allyship and they're loved for who they are, the less likely that they are going to want to even contemplate, let alone attempt suicide? Tell me if I got that wrong, but I think I have that mostly right. I don't have the numbers though. Yeah. There's a whole host of research showing similar things to what you just said. And that is, which I think should not be surprising to people, which is that when you love people and when you accept them and affirm them, it increases improves their mental health and makes them less likely to attempt or consider suicide. We have a lot of research that we can share and people can go look at our website. But I think when fundamentally, this is the golden rule. These are principles about the importance of love that human beings have known for millennia. And yet, even though we know that about the golden rule and we want to treat others the way we want to be treated and love other people, we continue to see people acting in different ways. At the Trevor Project, some of the research shows that having just one accepting adult in an LGBTQ young person's life can reduce their risk of suicide by 40%, four zero, which is a huge, huge number from a public health context. And so, Everyone listening should know you can be that one person. You alone 
you can advocate, you can get involved in politics, you can do many things. And just by being supportive and accepting, you can help be a lifesaver. So I think that is really important for folks to know. In the context of these political debates, we also have a lot of research that shows the mere existence of these debates of people in positions of power talking about LGBTQ young people as if they don't exist, as if they are faking it or pretending that they are someone they are not. The, these debates, we have data that shows that they in and of themselves impact in a negative way the mental health of LGBTQ young people, in particular of transgender and non-binary young people. And then there's a different body of research which shows, we've published research in peer-reviewed journals that shows having access to gender-affirming care reduces the risk of suicide by trans and non-binary young people. And so the very thing that the governor of Texas, who is not a doctor, who is not a researcher or a scientist, has based on nothing claimed is child abuse, the very thing he's saying is bad, there is a whole host of research which shows that it is actually life-saving. It's very disappointing to see lawmakers treat children as political pawns in this way. And we hope that voters and the courts and the public will see that this is wrong and will come out with love and respect and affirmation for children who need and deserve it. Do you think they're just using them as political pawns for gain? And or also, do you think they really believe this? Do you think that this does represent a certain level of very backwards, puritanistic kind of values amongst a certain segment of our population, especially post-2016? You know, I hate to ascribe motives to people that I do not know, and I cannot see into their heads or into their hearts. If there is a heart there, yes. I don't actually know what is worse. I don't know if it is worse if people actually hate transgender young people and are purposely trying to harm them, or if it is worse if they don't believe what they're saying and are doing it for cynical gain. But I think that the part of me that is optimistic and hopeful says that there are many people in this country who are receiving misinformation, who, who are not, don't have information about what it is like to be a trans person, what it is like to be a trans child. And so I, that's why I think it is so important that we have these conversations and not conversations from a point perspective of just trying to shame people or attack people, but actually really trying to educate people. Because I can tell you there are many people, people that I interact with who ask me questions, say, I don't get this. I just don't understand this. This is different than what I understood when I grew up. And I think the way that we think about approaching people like that is not from trying to shame them, because that just distances people and doesn't lead to more acceptance and support. How can we have a conversation to say, I appreciate you sharing that you don't understand this, Many people don't understand many things, and we want to be learning and growing, growing our minds, growing our hearts. And I, th I think the more people come in contact with LGBTQ people and come in contact with trans and non-binary young people and see they are people. LGBTQ people are people. We are people just like everyone else. We don't want special things. We don't want things that are different. We want to be treated with love and respect and dignity. And that's why I feel confident that we're going to eventually have a world where LGBTQ people will be supported because I do believe in love and I do believe in that people are inherently good. We just need to increase education and conversation and understanding. You know, one of the hardest lessons that I've learned very recently, say in the last 18 months, is that I, so I used to think in the same way that you very articulately said, you're not going to ascribe motives to people you don't know. 
I used to think that people on the left, which I am, are you know more informed and are supportive of the LGBTQ community, and people on the right aren't. And it's not exactly like that. How do you really move people and change minds and inform them in a way that's both emotional and non-emotional? You've done so much research to, to strip away some of the emotion. At the same time, it is both emotional and it is non-emotional, right? Especially as a parent. Yeah, I think there are different people that respond to different messages in different ways. So, you know, for some people, it really, really resonates with them to see data and to see research and science. And when you see the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, the American Psychological Association, and the list goes on and on, saying there's nothing wrong with being an LGBTQ person. And when you affirm people in their identity, it leads them to be more successful and better mental health outcomes. And when you try to reject them, or in some of the worst cases, when people try to subject their children to conversion therapy, which all the research shows not only does not work, but significantly increases the risk of suicide and negative mental health outcomes. I think some people, when they see that data, they see that research and they say, maybe this wouldn't have been something I would have chosen for my child, but given this is who my child is, I can look at the research and science and know that they cannot be changed. They are who they are. And so we want to provide them all the support because that's going to lead to outcomes. For some people, that really resonates. For other people, it's more about seeing stories and being touched in your heart. And it's be, and seeing hearing from LGBTQ young people who are saying, I was in the closet for decades and it, they were dark periods of my life. And I didn't know if I was going to make it. And I cried every day and I considered an attempted suicide. And now that I am out, I feel so much better. It's a weight lifted off my shoulder and now I'm a successful person. Or it's seeing examples of people who are successful. I mean, I know, you know, when I came out, I think one of my parents loved me very, very dearly. One of the things that they were worried about was we want our child to be successful. Can, can you be successful as an LGBTQ person? And now that we have CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, and we have people at some of the most senior levels of government and people in culture, it's creating possibility role models and possibility models, not just for young people, but for their parents and family members. So I think it is important that we communicate in various ways and really meet people where they are. And the last thing I did want to just say is that, because we talked at the beginning a little bit about politics, we at the Trevor Project, we are a nonpartisan organization. And we firmly believe that suicide prevention of LGBTQ young people is not a political issue. It is not a culture war issue. We are talking about- No, it's a human issue. It's a human issue. It's a saving life issue. And we have, there are prominent people of all parties who support the Trevor Project. There was a speech given on the floor of the US Senate by Orrin Hatch, former Senator Orrin Hatch, who I think very conservative Republican from Utah. Most people do not think of him as a liberal, person. And he gave a speech on the floor of the U.S. Senate that said LGBTQ young people exist. We know that they are considering suicide and attempting suicide at higher rates than the general population. We need them to know that they are loved, that they are human beings, that all life is precious and valuable, and we need to make sure that we are supporting them. Now, Orrin Hatch may not agree with same-sex marriage, and there may be a lot of policies that we disagree on, but he fundamentally is acknowledging that LGBTQ people exist and that we, we need to love them and support them. And I think we are seeing more and more of that as people of all faith denominations, of all political parties, 
because as we see more and more LGBTQ people, our humanity and our existence can't be denied. And people of good faith and good people want to make sure that human beings are supported and that we are creating more love and life and joy in the world. And there's urgency to this, right? I think this is your stat or Trevor Project stat, but it, what is it? Um, at least every 45 seconds, at least one LGBTQ youth contemplates suicide or attempts suicide. 45 seconds. That is correct. I think sometimes people don't understand the magnitude of this problem. I mean, for some people that resonates. Just think about how frequent that is, how many young people considered suicide just in the time that we have been talking right now. And for, for some other people, just to put that in a different framing of the order of magnitude, every year that's more than 1.8 million LGBTQ young people who seriously consider suicide just in the United States. We're not even talking the whole world, just the United States. So this is a public health crisis. It is urgent. And that is why we need such a broad community and movement of people to be focusing on supporting and loving and affirming LGBTQ young people, because we know that that lives are on the line every day. And Trevor Project is primarily US-based, but you just entered Mexico. We are, so we have historically done most of our work in the US. We do have some programs that are international, like our Trevor Space program. We have members in more than a hundred countries and every inhabitable continent. A lot of our research and advocacy has spanned across the globe, but our direct crisis services on phone, text, and chat has been exclusively offered in the U.S. And we just announced recently we are going to be expanding those services into Mexico and eventually are into countries around the world. Because I shared with you that statistic in the U.S. We know that globally there are more than 40 million, 40, 40 million LGBTQ young people every year who seriously consider suicide in countries around the world. And our ultimate vision is that all of them deserve love and support and to know they are not alone and that they can reach out to a trained counselor for support whenever they need it. So we are on the beginning of that journey starting in Mexico and in the not too distant future, we, we're excited to be able to announce other countries we will be providing our life-saving services in. And when you put it in that context, I think about Canada, for example, only has 30 million people. So you're talking about a population that's larger than the size of Canada that's considering suicide or contemplating suicide every year. Correct. It is an enormous number of people. When we say this is a global public health crisis, this is truly a global public health crisis. And for people who are, who are listening in the U.S., we've just been talking about the struggles and some, many of the challenges of LGBTQ young people in the U.S. And then you think about some other countries where we don't have organizations like the Trevor Project. We don't have LGBTQ centers, that there are even fewer resources than in the U.S. And in some of those countries where being LGBTQ is illegal, can get you thrown in jail, can subject you to physical violence or even the, the death penalty, there is a real, real acute need for support for LGBTQ young people everywhere. I feel like you are destined for this role. And I don't say that lightly. You have such an interesting background. You know, you attended Harvard undergrad and then you went and got your MBA from Columbia. And then you, then I think you got your, your MS also at Columbia in journalism. And then you went to McKinsey. So you've been a consultant, you've been a journalist, you've worked abroad as a foreign correspondent, I think for the Washington Post. Yeah. It's like you have built into you both advocacy, activism, research, journalistic integrity, a fact-based kind of grounding, and you're a lifeline counselor. You're the first person to run Trevor Project coming from the counseling side. 
So how have all of those different experiences shaped you to be the leader you are and to understand how to navigate what is increasingly a very complex, very urgent public health crisis that every day something new is being thrown at you, right? Every day. There's a lot of work to be done. And my goal is to pull from all the experiences that I've had and types of education and institutions that I've been really privileged and fortunate to be part of to help us achieve our mission. It's interesting because some people often remark that I'm running a nonprofit organization and I have a background in, in the private sector. In my time, both as a reporter and covering institutions and my time at McKinsey advising institutions, I saw and worked with nonprofit organizations, for-profit organizations, government or you know in, institutions. And I do not think that there is any, any one of them that has a monopoly on effective organization. I have seen for-profits that are extremely poorly run, and I've seen nonprofits that are very well run. And at the Trevor Project, my goal is to bring the best of all of those sectors to achieve our mission. Our mission is complicated. It's difficult. It is it's a global public health crisis, and we're facing attacks of all kinds every single day. And kids are counting on us. Young people are counting on us. And so we need to bring the best of every type of discipline we can. And that's been that's been part of our approach to say, in a lot of the suicide prevention space, there hasn't been as much of a focus on technology and innovation as there might be in other places. And so we have a technology team, we have machine learning engineers and data scientists, and we've really tried to use AI in ways that can help us scale our impact and better serve young people. We've brought in on the research side people that are have backgrounds in epidemiology and clinical psychology and other types of research. We've had on our team people from psychiatry to psychology to social work to other types of mental health and, and, and social change spaces. We need everything. We need everyone in order to solve this challenge because it is so immense and so acute. And I think the last thing I'll say is that, you know, one of the things that really guides me is that we need to focus on the needs of LGBTQ young people. You know, when I started at the organization, I tried to be very clear. We, at that time, were also the world's largest organization. And what was very clear to me was that it wasn't enough to say we were the largest or we were the best or we we're doing difficult work. We needed to look at what do young people actually need? What is the order of magnitude? And then how do we set the vision to say, we want to be there for every young person who needs us, which will require significant change, significant transformation. But it's actually not about us as, as individuals or as an institution. It is about the young people that we serve. And so we need to not be focused on the status quo or where we are. We need to be focused on where we need to get to. We need to set a bold vision on behalf of LGBTQ young people and then figure out how to achieve it. And I think when you frame things that way, it helps people to achieve what they otherwise might have thought was impossible because we are doing the impossible every day. 24 years ago, no one thought it was possible to have an organization devoted to LGM people. I can tell you 15 years ago, people did not think it was possible to provide suicide prevention services on text and chat. Now it is accepted as a norm. We're going to be going to degrees where people don't think it is possible to have LGBTQ people be accepted. So I, I think our mere existence is a testament to the fact that we can make the impossible possible, and we have to dream of a vision that might seem far away right now, but that is how you create transformative change and create a brighter world for all young people.
You joined the organization in 2017, so five years ago? Yes, when I became CEO. Sorry, where you became CEO, right, because you were a counselor, a volunteer counselor prior to that. And I don't think anybody could argue this. doesn't matter your politic. 2017 through today, we've never, especially then, we've never seen so much division and animus, especially in the U.S. So you joined in a time when there's probably more discrimination and hatred than ever before, at least in recent memory. And also, you then had to deal with COVID and a pandemic. And we're still in it. Hopefully, we're moving towards endemic. What are the key lessons you've learned over the last five years in having to lead this organization that even in, quote unquote, if there's any such thing as a normal time, it's hard. And then you have all these other kind of both existential and intrinsic challenges surrounding you and your charge. When you reflect back on the last five years, what are some of the key things that you've learned? There's so many things. And as you said, these have been very challenging times. And I think we're constantly learning and trying to figure out how we can do better. As I think across many of those challenges, some of the things that I think served us well at the Trevor Project were really being laser focused on our mission and our impact for young people. So even as the tactics might change of what we're doing and the world might be changing around us, what we are trying to do, the ultimate place we're trying to get does not change. And so some people say you want to be really stubborn on your goals and on your vision and then you want to be very flexible on how to get there. We made a lot of changes in, in response to all those things. We used to talk about COVID, for example. We used to have our phone lifeline was run out of bricks and mortar call centers in New York and LA, and we had physical offices. We did not really have a sophisticated work from home policy. I had a view then, which was completely wrong in retrospect, but I had a view that it's really important that people come into the office that culture will fall apart if we're not in an office and work won't get done and young people will pay the price. And then the pandemic happened and we moved very quickly because a core value that we have is the commitment to public health and safety of our team and of our broader community. So we closed our offices. We moved our call centers to be virtual and remote. And we happened for various reasons to be in relatively short-term leases. So all our leases expired on a physical office space. So we have no physical offices. And then we began hiring staff across the country, which has been a huge, huge benefit for our team. It's increased the, the pool of talent that we can bring to the organization, the diversity, geographic diversity, but also other types of diversity of our team. And hugely, hugely beneficial for the organization, not without challenges or challenges too, but created a lot of positives. But if we had said, we always thought we we're going to be in office, we're not going to change, we're going to do that the same way, we wouldn't have been able to experiment and be nimble and benefited from some of those changes in the way that we operate. So I think that focus being laser focused on mission, but being flexible and nimble and experimenting with new things is really important. And then I think just being clear on our values, we talked about you know commitment to health and safety, being nonpartisan is also an important value that we have. And it was very, very difficult during the previous administration when there were a number of attacks on young people, but we remained committed to finding places where we could have bipartisan support. And it was during the previous administration that legislation passed in Congress that specifically called for specialized services for LGBTQ young people in suicide prevention. It unanimously passed Congress. It was the first time LGBTQ was listed in a legislation that unanimously passed Congress. The former chair of the Federal Trade Commission 
was a huge advocate for services for LGBTQ young people in a new iteration of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline that's going to be released called 988. So it's important to us to call out when people in power are taking actions that are harming young people. And in the previous administration, there were many actions that were devastating and very harmful for LGBTQ young people. And there were also people in that administration who took some steps that did help LGBTQ people. As I mentioned, we continue to see lawmakers on both sides of the aisle who are standing up for LGBTQ young people in some contexts. And so we want to continue to nurture that and grow that because that's what we need. We need everyone to be supporting LGBTQ. Yeah. And we're realizing too that it's as important, if not even more so at the state level, because there's a lot of power there, whether it's LGBTQ rights or it is voter rights and laws, that we need to make sure that we take the battle there as well. I have one last question for you. Again, this is not to take us off the mission, but just the fact that you started off, you're a foreign correspondent. I believe that you were also stationed in Baghdad for some time. As we enter the fourth week of this awful war in Ukraine, unprovoked, unjustified by Putin, what are your thoughts, especially as someone who's been on the ground and seen conflict and has reported on that? How are you feeling? When I talk to people, there's so much anxiety and stress that I think people around the world are facing because of this war in the Ukraine. And I certainly would not pretend to know what it is like to be in the Ukraine right now. I do know what it is like to be in a war zone. And I know how much suffering comes from war and how people are put into positions that are created by people in power that they are not responsible for. The other thing that I often share with people when they ask what time that is just how everything is much, much more complicated than it seems. And that there is a tendency of people to want to simplify. There are good guys, good people and bad people. And there are good people in the world and there are bad people in the world. But on the ground, there are people who they are citizens of a country and they may be put into certain roles that are beyond their control or asked to do things that they don't fully understand what the implications of. And so I, I just I have a lot of I have a lot of empathy for so many people in this conflict that are in very, very complex situations that most of us, I hope most of us are never in that situation. I just feel a lot of sadness, a lot of sadness for so many people who are suffering and also knowing that the impact, hopefully there will be a ceasefire, hopefully there will be an end to outright hostility and the impacts of what have happened in the past few weeks will continue to be felt by people for decades to come. And the mental health impacts of the trauma of being in a war zone will be felt by people for years to come. So I don't have anything particularly brilliant or astute or to make of the, of the crisis, just a lot of, of sadness and concern and love and hope that we will, that there'll be a way to resolve and end violence soon. Yeah. And like me, you're probably heartened by the fact though, that there's a lot of support globally for Ukraine and especially at the corporate level. Early on when we started, you, you talked about how, you know, you've worked for nonprofits, you've, you've reported on institutions and you've worked for institutions as, as a consultant. And to see these institutions stand up in the same way that so many of them are also working with Trevor Project, I think it's their responsibility. And I think that I'd like to continue to see more of that because when I started working three decades ago, it was taboo to talk about anything to take a side or to be perceived taking a side in any issue. 
And now I think we all expect a lot more from our corporates and our institutions. And to me, that is heartening and hopefully performative as well to try to end wars and to end hate and discrimination. So listen, Amit, I can't thank you enough for being so generous with your time. I know that we've run over a little bit. I thank you for your servant leadership and I thank you for everything that you and Trevor Project's doing to save young LGBTQ people's lives and better educate and empower allyship to make this world a much better, safer, more virtuous place for all of us to live. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brand on Purpose, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven companies, organizations, and people. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our production team, including Maria Bias, Michael Grubbs, Anna Lamb, Haley Sackett, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show, sponsorship opportunities, and hosts by emailing BOP at kwtglobal.com or visiting aaronquitkin.com. Find us on LinkedIn and Instagram under Brand on Purpose Podcast.